you're tuned in to Dialogues on AI Digital Pathology. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to medical and industry experts who will be sharing their thoughts on the evolving trends of AI Digital Pathology and its role in finding effective treatments for non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, also known as NASH. Thank you for listening and enjoy the podcast. Hello and good day to all our listeners. Welcome back to Dialogues of Artificial Intelligence Digital Pathology. This is part two of a special episode where I'm joined by Professor Pierre Bedosa, Professor Zach Goodman, and Professor David Kleiner to discuss the key takeaways from the recent FDA webcast on NASH drug development. Welcome back, Professor Bedosa, Professor Goodman and Professor Kleiner. In part two of the podcast, we have some more questions regarding histological assessment for NASH from pharma companies as well as from clinical investigators. And I would be grateful if you could, each of you, give your opinion and your expertise to the question. Here is the first question in part two. Please explain in more details the role of histological assessment of fibrosis changes in different zones of the liver lobule in NASH. Um, Dr. Goodman, would you like to start? Okay. So um, the earliest thing that we see in, in uh, NASH is that there is uh, activation of the stellate cells, which causes uh, fibrosis in the perisinusoidal space in uh, zone three of the uh, acinus, which corresponds to the central lobular areas, the areas right around the central vein. And uh, it's, it's never been completely clear that this is, you know, this is really a sequential sequence, but I think that uh, some of that is probably pretty labile collagen and it can resorb readily because when uh, there's no need for it to be there. So uh, the, the function of this uh, zone three fibrosis, I think, is not, not entirely clear in my mind. I've often wondered, perhaps that's more like a scaffolding, helping hold those liver cells together rather than pathologic feature. Might be repair rather than uh, actual something leading to more permanent scars. And then uh, some patients just stop there and that's all you ever see. And then there'll be some who have not only fibrosis in the central lobular areas, but also in the periportal areas. And that seems to be associated with the development of um, inflammation in the portal areas, which uh, probably indicates that there's an immunologic component present, that you get not only fibrosis and activation of uh, portal myofibroblasts, but also ductular reaction. Something that hasn't been studied very much. And uh, again, many patients don't go any further than that. And then uh, beyond that, you see uh, fibrosis that extends and obliterate some of the uh, lobular landmarks so you can't tell exactly where it was, where the central vein was, maybe incorporated into a scar. It may transect the, the lobule, but often you can't tell that in a needle biopsy. But I think it does happen and that it does, that's when you get progressive liver disease, when you start having septiform. And then uh, when the whole uh, liver has been obliterated that way, then uh, we call it cirrhosis. That would be stage four. But um, 
again, the, the, the sequences have never been uh, terribly well worked out with longitudinal studies on lots of patients. Many of them uh, show spontaneous regression at times. Uh, sometimes you see increases in fibrosis that can happen very suddenly. And that would that suggest that there's something else going on besides what we traditionally think of as the uh, pathologic features of, uh, of fatty liver disease. It could have a vascular basis or something else. Thank you. That was very useful details. Uh, Dr. Kleiner, would you comment also again on this question and focusing on the perisinusoidal fibrosis that is observed in NASH? Sure. Um, Zach did a really good job of kind of summarizing that what we know about the pathophysiology and the natural history of the disease. Um, you know, one of the things that we see is that perisinusoidal fibrosis, this network of collagen that uh, you see out in the parenchyma away from either portal areas or the larger scars does persist through the disease, through the later stages of the disease. You can usually recognize it when there's still, when there's bridging fibrosis, there may be actually uh, very large networks of this perisinusoidal collagen. Uh, and I agree with Zach that the actual role and the, and the meaning of that fibrosis is not clear, um, not really based on any data. I, I have thought that that might help contribute to the portal hypertension that you see in patients with alcoholic or non-alcoholic uh, liver disease uh, just by constriction of sinusoids uh, so that you might get other kinds of changes, uh, systemic changes um, in patients prior to actually getting uh, the development of cirrhosis. It might also contribute to the stiffness of the liver in a different way from what you see in viral hepatitis um, so that the, the cutoff values that one uses for elastography might be different in fatty liver disease from other kinds of liver diseases that lack this significant perisinusoidal fibrosis. Um, you know, one thing that has come up in conversations in the NASH network is whether or not we can assess, uh, you know, just again, human observations, can, can we assess change in this fibrosis as a response to treatment? Because it's been our sense that uh, it is more malleable, uh, that it tends to disappear more quickly than um, more established fibrosis that you might see bridging between vascular structures. But it's, it's a difficult, it is honestly a difficult thing for us to assess um, reproducibly, I think. And uh, so it's, it still remains a challenge uh, in histologic measurement. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Bedosa? It's always very difficult to be the last because <laughs> the first two have already described in details and I fully agree. I think that what, what David says is very important is... Uh, what happens uh, in the context of uh, advanced disease and even regression of the disease regarding fibrosis. So far, we have no way to describe the regressing features of uh, liver fibrosis. And there are potentially some very characteristic features in the context of regressing disease because 
we have in, in several studies uh, face to face biopsy before and after and uh, my, my my thought is that uh, pericinusoidal fibrosis is the first to disappear uh, then uh, septal fibrosis will disappear also uh, if there is enough regeneration and no inflammation and then what happens at least my view is that the fibrosepta be become uh, thinner and thinner and fi finally disrupt and you end with some uh, periportal fibrosis with incomplete septa which have been described already in pathology so in other words this is a, a very large uh, world that has not been explored and I will be very, very interested to, to go deeper into this uh, regression pattern of liver fibrosis. Thank you. And building on, on that comes the question number two. In addition to the CRN score endpoints for NAFL deactivity score and fibrosis, Artificial intelligence digital pathology provides additional parameters or information on additional parameters, for example, septa quantitation, zonal changes in steatosis or fibrosis. Can these additional parameters be incorporated to assess the efficacy of different compounds in NASH? So, Pierre, can we start with you for this oh, question, yeah. please? Yes, I, I think that the major issue is uh, septa quanti quantitation and septa thickness and uh, cross-bridging cross, uh, uh, of, uh, of collagen. And I think that histone index is, is do, doing very nicely because uh, looking to, to this pattern could help to know, uh, to have some insight into the dynamic of the fibrosis, is it progressing or is it regressing? Is it stable or might it regress? So to me, uh, analyzing in more detail, uh, septa, not only quantitation, but uh, thickness, uh, the curvature of the, the fibroseptor could, could help a lot. I don't know about steatosis. I'm not sure that uh, can change or give a lot of uh, information, but uh, uh, again, fibrosis and septa uh, analysis is really important. Thank you. And I'll turn now to Dr. Kleiner to comment on this question. Um, sure. I, you know, I think that what these things do is they give you insight, possibly, into um, the biology of response or regression or, or what have you. Uh, you know, so as kind of interesting secondary endpoints, they're useful. Um, in terms of, of judging whether whether you've got overall efficacy, I think is a more difficult question. Um, just because efficacy is usually a binary thing, right? You, you do a study and in the end, you either have met your, your endpoint or you have not. It's not something that's graded, and it's it's based on one single parameter. So, to to put all of all of your evaluation on one of these other components would require a lot of of uh, accumulation of data that those changes, whatever they were, septal thickness or or complexity of fibrosis or something else, um, actually was a clinically relevant measure. So you, you'd have to do all of that work first before you could use it as a 
primary measure of efficacy, but I think as secondary measures of you know what's changing in the biopsy, um, the all anything you can get from from image analysis on fibrosis or or any of the other histologic changes uh, is is interesting data, and it can help you think about the biology of the disease. And and now I turn to Dr. Goodman. What do you think about incorporating the additional parameters uh, to the existing CRN score endpoints, Dr. Goodman? Um, to the CRN endpoints, huh? I, I, anything is possible we could, if, if the data is available. I've uh, seen some of the output from um, histo indexes of um, assessments of the slides and. They have hundreds of things that are that are measured, so it's a matter of ha having a way to uh, report it in um, some sort of comprehensible fashion. Uh, and and that that I haven't seen yet. So uh, that that's going to be somebody who knows more about it than I would come up with a way to do that. But of course, the more information you get, the more data you can mine and the more things that you can come up with as hypotheses for for studies of uh, whether or not it actually makes a difference. Thank you all. So this key takeaway perhaps is that we need more data and to look at this data and see how they inform us of the biology of the disease uh, and understand the mechanism of progression and regression. We move on to the third question. Fibrosis can be heterogeneous in a liver specimen. Some areas may have patterns of F1 or F2. Others are like F3, F4 fibrosis. How does this heterogeneity impact the overall fibrosis scoring when comparing AI-based histology with the scoring by an experienced pathologist? Who would like to start? Pierre? Yes, well, I would say that's a the strength of the pathologist is uh, he integrates everything and uh, all the biopsy in uh, in the score, the area of F1, F2, F3, F4, etc. So uh, at last, uh, to me, uh, only the semi-quantitative scoring systems allow to integrate all the data into one scoring system. If you have a, a one or two fibroceptin in the rest of the biopsy, you don't just have F1, etc. you will end with F3. And this is the way we are always processing. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, digital AI pathology, and spe especially the method of, method of quantification can do that. And uh, because I would say that one of the strengths of the pathologist evaluation with their naked A's is to assess not only the amount of fibrosis, but the lobular uh, architecture and the change of the lobular ar architecture. So maybe digital AI pathology can do that, but at least to me, uh, so far, the ACE of the pathologist is the only uh, tool that can integrate uh, all of that into uh, a single score. Okay. Uh, Dr. Kleiner, turning to you, what would be your opinion? Sure. Um, so I've actually seen digital AI pathology presented in this sort of fashion at meetings with, with, you know, biopsies being described as combinations of different stages. And to me, this, this doesn't make sense because 
it's not the way that pathologists understand stage. And I think Pierre kind of highlighted that. We look at the whole biopsy and we stage the disease along a spectrum that goes from no fibrosis to advanced cirrhosis. And we, we pick the point along that natural history that we think best fits our the definitions that we've created for ourselves. Um, if you're calling, if the digital AI pathology is calling one end of the biopsy F1 and the other F4, to me, that's not an integrated analysis. That's looking at the microheterogeneity, which is present, but in pathology terms, that's undersampling, right? So you're looking at, you know, two millimeters of the biopsy to get the get those stages instead of looking at the 20 millimeters of biopsy that you might actually have. And so um, there might be information in that heterogeneity, uh, but it's not stage information, it's other kind of information. So, uh, so, so the question really has never quite made much sense to me. Thank you, and I turn now on to Dr. Goodman to give a summary opinion on that question. Yes, I, I agree. I think it's an inappropriate use of the terminology that they, they, they took what the pathologists were doing and tried to adapt it without understanding what it means. So you, you can't have like, I mean, if I've, see, I've seen the, the term F4 pixels used. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, how can a pixel be cirrhosis? That that, that, does, that makes no sense. But you could have dense fibrosis there. You could see, you could talk about the density, about the degree of saturation. There are many ways they could do it. But instead of doing that, um, they, they use this inappropriate terminology, trying to relate it to stages of disease, which is not not right. Thank you. Thank you, all three of you, because that's been very helpful and, and very clear in addressing this point. So we move to the next question, which is focused on um, F4 biopsies. Regarding the evaluation of F4 biopsy in NASH trial for fibrosis and inflammation, is it useful to have both parameters assessed as suggested by the regulatory uh, authorities? So both uh, inflammation and fibrosis assessed in an established F4 biopsy. Um, shall we start with Dr. Kleiner? Because I think you haven't been first for some time, Dr. Kleiner, so I'll just <laughs> okay. give you the chance. All right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it makes a difference how much inflammation is present. Uh, it tells you it tells you how, how active the disease is. That's what inflammation is. Um, inflammation is an indication of the the ongoing immunological response to injury, whether that's an appropriate immunological response or not. Um, and it's a very different situation uh, and than a, a biopsy that is the same stage but has no inflammation. Uh, in inflamed biopsy, there will be lots of uh, collagen turnover. There might be, um, you know, infiltration of inflammatory cells the parenchyma uh, that's significant, it might indicate that the disease is, is yet progressing at a, a rate which, it, which can be measured, whereas a quiescent cirrhosis is, is a different kind of situation. So I, I think that both of those things are important. I don't know that I would 
combine them into one sort of single assessment, but you could look for change in both fibrosis and inflammation, and I think that's important. Okay. Uh, Dr. Goodman, what do you think? Yes, well, the, uh, the FDA gives the uh, sponsors a choice. You can hit if they have three three targets that can be hit, one is fibrosis, one is inflammation, and the other is both. So uh, why not assess both? But this was a question specifically for F4 biopsy. Yes. Well, all right. In in uh, if they already have cirrhosis, you would still uh, want to uh, know whether or not after treatment that the uh, uh, inflammation has gotten better, even if it's still cirrhotic. Sure. And, and Dr. Bedosa? Well, I think it's really important to assess both uh, fibrosis and inflammation in, in the context of cirrhosis. Uh, because uh, cirrhosis is not a single disease. There are plenty of cirrhosis, and our uh, colleague from Canada, Jan Wandles, de described stage 4 A, B, and C, which is related to the amount of fiber, uh, thickness of, uh, of the septa and the size of the nodule, etc. So there are plenty of, of uh, cirrhosis. And uh, assessing activity to me is very important because, and this is what we know from FC is that some cirrhosis may regress, but they will regress only if there is no more activity. So it's very, very important to not only to assess whether it is or it is not a cirrhosis, but how active the disease is. So we have consensus that all three of you agree that both inflammation and fibrosis should be assessed, even in established cirrhosis. It's very clear. Um, we move to the next question, which is, how do you see the AI-based digital pathology being deployed to aid pathologists in their day-to-day -day work? Will this eventually be comparable to how many of the radiologists today work with such advanced tools, for example, segmentation, annotation, quantification of uh, abnormal features, tumor volume, etc.? or any, any other way that you think might be helpful in the day-to-day -day work of pathologists? Who would like to, to start? Um, Pierre, maybe? Yeah, well, I think there's this two ways to think about that. One is uh, AI-based digital pathologies that could assess something that the pathologists cannot see. And I am uh, thinking, for example, to to SAG and the, uh, what is index is assessing. They are assessing parameters such as the, 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 the density of the collagen, etc. That we cannot uh, access to to standard uh, uh, mass centricome or red, red staining. So this is something which is in addition to what what we are uh, doing. And obviously, maybe if we had the tools that have been developed with the pathologist, not against them or not to replace the pathologist, that could help us to, for example, suggest uh, that here there is a ballooned cells, et cetera, et cetera. Probably that could help us to be probably a little bit more uh, rapid and, and, and more uh, reproducible. But again, it should be something that could came as an help 
for the pathologist, but surely not to replace it. Yes, I mean, yeah, I think the question was not to replace it, it was more how <laughs> digital pathology could aid the pathologist in the day-to-day -day work. So, Well, but so, so, so some uh, company would re would like to replace a pathologist, of course, <laughs> you know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, that was not the context of the question, I can assure mm -hmm. you. Okay, maybe we move to Dr. Goodman now. Doc Dr. Goodman, what do you think of that? Uh, the place of digital pathology as an aid to the day-to-day -day pathology work. And I was reading about what radiologists do. I wasn't aware of all of that. Uh, tumor tumor volume I could understand, but the rest of these things, uh, I don't know what they do with uh, with these things. And uh, and as Pierre says, I think the only thing that would be uh, really useful is if it's something that you can't pick up. Um, readily with uh, using uh, the standard microscope. I mentioned earlier, for example, finding uh, scattered, uh, you know, inconspicuous balloon cells, that, that might work, or finding something similar. And, um, you know, perhaps using it to analyze immunostains and uh, other kinds of special stains that, uh, you know, might, might have other information that wouldn't be picked up uh, in, uh, unless you have a way of quantifying it. But I, I, nothing really jumps to my mind uh, that would be useful in the day-to-day -day work because there we're usually looking at low technology and things that are rather relatively uh, obvious. So it's more towards quantitation in the setting of clinical trials rather than day-to-day diagnostic work. I think so. If I understand correctly. Um, Dr. Kleiner? Sure. I think that it depends a lot on, you know, what we learn about the utility of these quantitative measures and the accessibility of the technology. If, for example, after all is said and done, we determined that some parameter that is better measured by digital AI pathology is important for understanding the potential for disease progression or, or something, something like that, um, or response to therapy. And the technology, you know, in terms of whole slide imaging and data analysis were readily available to the pathologist. And I'm assuming that that, that is the case as the basis of the question then yes, I mean, that this could be used. I think in its current incarnation, um, a lot of things aren't yet there. We don't have uh, the technology seamlessly integrated in our work practices, and the AI tools are not yet mature enough for us to use in this fashion. And if we do do this, it would not just be in the context of fatty liver disease, it would be in the larger context of everything that the pathologist does. So there might be applications in uh, tumor biology, there might be applications in other kinds of uh, liver disease or other kinds of medical diseases of the kidney or, or lung or something like that, where, where the tools, you had a suite of tools available to you and they could add significantly to the information that you give the clinician and the clinical significance of that information was understood you know, once all of those things are in place, then I think that it would have a place. But right now, a lot of the pieces aren't there. So it doesn't have any meaning yet. 
but I would rather see it in our hands than in, you know, than to to turn pathology entirely over to a company and have them provide whatever answer that they could. Thank you very much. So that's very clear. And we move to the next question. Um, currently, there are different AI digital pathology platforms, as we know, which are being used or explored rather in NASH trials primarily. Do you think that having a head-to-head -head comparison of these different platforms would be helpful to define their place in the liver histology evaluation? Um, Dr. Goodman, would you like to start? Just to give you a chance to be the first. Well, of course it would be uh, useful for whoever's going to be doing the evaluation of these one versus another, but I, I would... Uh, suspect that uh, most of the companies would not want to take that gamble unless they were really sure of their product. I, re I remember one uh, large drug trial that was undertaken by a company during the, uh, during the interferon era, the head-to-head -head comparison, and uh, it turned out that the company that sponsored it was not the one that won the contest, so it might, might be, uh, you know, might be dangerous, so you, you, you don't want to ask for something if you don't know what the answer will be. Very fair and uh, good perspective. So um, uh, perhaps uh, Dr. Kleiner? I think that this is a actually a fairly important question. Um, and I, I would think that the regulatory bodies would be very interested in the answer too, right? If While I don't expect to see vastly different answers coming from different digital AI platforms, I think it would be valuable to understand what the differences are. And, you know, if you're going to depend upon one rather than another, what does that mean? So I think it's an important question from a regulatory standpoint and from a scientific standpoint, uh, how willing companies might be to participate in something like this. I, I don't know, but we've seen basically the same thing happen with non-invasive markers. People compare uh, ultrasound elastography to MRI um, elastography methods. Uh, people compare different combinations of non-invasive uh, serum biomarkers, uh, you know, in their ability to diagnose NASH or, or any other disease. So I don't see why it should be any different with these digital AI platforms. And they're, they're only going to become more of these things as AI technology becomes more a part of what everyone is able to do and image analysis becomes more readily available. There will be a proliferation of these kinds of things. And so it, I think it becomes important to know how well they perform with respect to one another. Uh, thank you. And uh, Dr. Bedosa? Well, I think it's really difficult. Uh, and I think that the comparison with non-invasive marker is something which is very relevant. But uh, to compare digital pathology platforms, you need to get a gold standard. So uh, do you mean that uh, digital uh, pathology uh, AI should be compared to the standard evaluation of liver biopsy or do they have to be compared to clinical outcome etc so it's rather a difficult question and obviously i don't have a 
any answer so far because uh, the technology are so different and the aim of these uh, different companies is very different so it's very difficult to 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 have a comparison at least face to face maybe with standard histology yes but face to face it's to me very difficult so far thank you and well we have come to the end of our questions and i really would like to sincerely thank uh, our uh, experts dr bedosa dr goodman dr kleiner for your detailed and informative answers before we end the podcast may i uh, invite you to share your concluding comments and advice to our listeners what would be the message that you would like them to keep in mind based on the information that you have shared and opinions that shared during the podcast who would like to start first dr kleiner perhaps okay um so you know we've spent some time talking about uh the role of histological assessment and and the methods of doing that and and the advantages and, and disadvantages of digital AI pathology. Um, I think that, you know, in, in the future that we'll continue to see development of these platforms. And I would just uh, like to see continued partnership with pathologists. Um, one thing that is always important to remember is that uh, computers will only give you answers to the questions that you ask. And I, it is my hope that we will never get to a point where the pathologist will be completely bypassed and we, we will move to just assessing things by digital pathology because there are changes in the biopsy that are other than the, the few things that we have identified and are working on to assess digitally. It's important to remember that the computer will not see those things. Digital AI will not see them unless we have trained it to do so. And so if there is something there that needs to be brought to clinical attention, uh, it's not gonna happen unless a pathologist who has been trained in all aspects of pathology looks at the biopsy. So, uh, so I think, you know, as, as we go forth and as we develop these techniques, we have to remember that they are there for specific applications and not for uh, general application to any, any question that we might have. Thank you. Dr. Bedosa? Well, uh, I think we have a, a very good and extended discussion on uh, AI digital pathology. To me, I'm fascinated by the development of the technology, and I'm quite sure that uh, in the coming years, uh, there, we will see more and more technical approaches that would allow to either help the pathologist or uh, describe something that we cannot see. So we have to follow that very carefully. And of course, as mentioned by David and, and I did also previously, uh, I think that any development in this area should be done uh, in discussion with, with a pathologist. And uh, I think this is uh, this association uh, that can be very fruitful, fruitful for, 
for the future of clinical trial. Uh, thank you, Pierre. And Dr. Goodman? Yes, well, I uh, agree with everything that Pierre and David said, and I just um, sort of musing over the course of my career, I've seen uh, techniques uh, suddenly come into the picture, enjoy a vogue for a few years. There's more and more published for using that technique. And then eventually it either plays itself out and disappears into the background or it seems to have a minor role or else it will explode and like like uh, the immunohistochemistry is done and it will uh, overwhelm everything else. So I'm not sure which, uh, which way artificial intelligence and digi digitalization will, uh, will go, uh, but we'll, we'll hope that it, it uh, as, uh, as both David and Pierre said, that it will go hand in hand with uh, what else that we are doing in pathology and will be an aid rather than a competitor. Sure. Thank you. I, wonderful to have your insights. Uh, thank you, all three of you, very much for being our guests today. And I hope that you also enjoyed this interesting conversation that we had on a broad range of questions in both parts of uh, the podcast. Cynthia, I trust that this has been a highly informative two-part podcast for our listeners. Uh, thank you for organizing it, and I'll hand over to you uh, for the concluding remarks by, by the host. Without a doubt, Dr. No Move, it definitely was. This conversation held many enlightening and useful insights that I trust would instill confidence in everyone who's involved in NASH drug development, especially the pharma and biotech companies and clinical investigators who sent in their questions. I'd like to thank you all so much for your overwhelming support in sending your questions in over to us. And on behalf of HistoIndex, our thanks and appreciation to our guests, Professor Pierre Bedosa, Professor of Pathology at the University of Paris and Consultant in Liver Pathology at Liverpad. Also to Professor Zachary Goodman, Director of Hepatic Pathology, Consultation and Research at Inova Fairfax Hospital. And Professor David Kleiner, Senior Research Physician and Chief of Postmortem Section, Laboratory of Pathology from the Center for Cancer Research at the National Cancer Institute. And Dr. No Move, I must take this opportunity to thank you for the tremendous role you have played in the production, as well as being the moderator for this podcast. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with our guests in this episode. Thank you very much, uh, Cynthia. It was a privilege for me to uh, be a moderator and to work with three very prominent, uh, renowned leading pathologist. Thank you for the opportunity to participate in the podcast, which I believe would be very useful for all interested in NASH, clinical investigators, drug developers, as well as for the regulators. Given the essential role of liver histopathology in assessment of NASH, this podcast with three leading experts in liver pathology will be a cornerstone in the collective efforts to improve the trial endpoints and for bringing effective therapies to patients uh, with NASH. So thank you again. Very well said. Our great pleasure once again, and we look forward to more opportunities ahead with similar discussions.
On this note, we've come to the end of our podcast. I'd like to thank all of you listeners for your great support and for listening in to both parts of our episode. As we expect more developments from the current studies and clinical trials in NASH, we will be back in the next half of the year to bring you more conversations with experts from the industry. If you have any suggestions or questions regarding our programming, please do send a note to us at info at histoindex.com. Also, please stay tuned to us on our website at www.histoindex.com or on our LinkedIn page for updates. You've been listening to Dialogues on AI Digital Pathology. Thank you for tuning in and have a nice day. Goodbye.